Ev? I'm home. Did it go okay? Oh, yeah. Piece of cake. Is your undercover, Don? He's dead, all right. Intelligence was my heroine. Robert Mazur is a former undercover DEA agent who's been in two major operations. He helped take down Pablo Escobar and stop the Cali cartel. But this time the stakes were higher. Mazur was intentionally wanted by affiliates of another drug cartel. And he had half a billion dollar bounty on his life. And he wouldn't stop. Intelligence was his heroine. Welcome to Crime Waves. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Declan Hill, and here on Crime Waves, we investigate the greatest investigators in the world. And this week, my student producer is Ariana Timmons. Together, we interviewed Robert Mazur. And in his Operation Promo, his cover was almost blown by agents working with him. So we started with that story. Robert, let's give our listeners a sense of what it's like to be an undercover investigator, to be going up against these dangerous people. Please tell me that story that we discussed earlier, where somebody has screwed up the New York operations. And because of that, you're walking into a hotel room and you don't know if you're going to walk out of that alive or not. Please tell us that story. Sure. Well, you know, (laughs) Working long-term undercover is, uh, for lack of a better term, a team sport. So you're not out there alone all the time. And there's so many things that need to be done behind the scenes to take advantage of the intelligence that I'm feeding back to the office. So um, in the infiltrator story, which this incident you're referencing uh, relates to, yes, uh, we had eight U.S. cities that um, had both case agents, undercover agents, and, and I was the lead undercover attempting to coordinate from an undercover uh, perspective uh, what was happening in those eight cities. So um, one of the things that happens is when you're at the highest level of money laundering, which I was working for uh, the Medellin cartel and the leaders of that cartel, we routinely received a million, $2 million at a time uh, on the streets of many cities. Mm -hmm. Um, um, So we wound up with a situation after I'd returned from meeting with Pablo Escobar's consigliere, um, a lawyer, um, um, a, for lack of a better term, a contract for $100 million that we were to receive in increments of a million to two million at a time that would be uh, then laundered and put into a nest egg in the event that they had to flee and the money was uh, being salted away in Europe. So we received the first million or two in New York. I had made it clear to the agents in New York that there was no doubt in my mind that there would be counter surveillance by the bad guys. And um, we needed to be extremely cautious with how many surveillance people we put out there. There are many different people who are trying to achieve different things for different cities during these operations. And sometimes their goals are contradictory to um, mine. And well, in the they case, were scoring brownie points. <laughs> they were yeah. trying to get their own little investigations on, and you're dealing with multi-million dollars and you're dealing in a case where if something goes wrong, your life, they're going to kill you, not the guy in New York who's putting on too many people. I'm sorry. I just finished your books and I'm so passionate about how often your personal safety was risked by these idiots playing Mm. these stupid games. Well, you know, um, life's a bell curve and um, just like professors and undercover agents and surveillance agents, there's a lot in the middle that are pretty darn good. And there are some on the, the extreme that are outstanding. And then there are some on the other extreme that aren't. And um, so you just have to make the best you can of, of each and every day. But in this particular case, uh, they put so much surveillance out there. Of course, the reason they do that is that they want to try to follow the cartel's courier after right. the cor- courier drops off a million or two million. 
under the the false assumption that they're going to be able to go back to the pot at the end of the rainbow and make seizures of huge amounts of money. They're too smart um, to make it that easy for everyone. But regardless, um, counter surveillance picked up on all the agents that were out there. That was reported back to Medellin, mm -hmm. uh, among others, to a fellow by the name of Herodo Moncada, who was the principal manager of Pablo Escobar's routes at that time, a very violent guy. And um, he immediately said that there was no doubt that I must be a DEA undercover agent because the feds were all over the street. Right. And so I had to try to uh, talk myself, uh, talk them <laughs> out of that. And, and I came up with a, with a thought I had, had really kind of established some rapport with someone who was very close to Moncada, very trusted by Moncada. And I asked him for a meeting, which he granted in Miami. And, um, and so in Miami, in all these cities, I had what's known as a contact agent. So they are to be advised before you're going to go out and do a lot of uh, contact with bad guys. They kind of like to know what you're going to be doing. And in some instances, they may feel as though they want to do surveillance on, on the operation. And we exchange our thoughts and I try to talk them out of it most of the time. <laughs> but in this instance, I, um, I said, listen, if they pick up on, on surveillance, me meeting this guy at this hotel, you're never going to do anything other than find parts of my body. And so give me the, uh, here's, you know, you have my cell phone number. Um, back then we had pagers. I had a pager number and, uh, and I've got your numbers and we'll use this as a code. If you call and I say this word, then, you know, I've got a problem. This is the hotel I'm going to be at. Uh, this is the room number that I'm going to. And, and I really didn't know if it was only going to be that guy in the room or not, but it turned out that it was. And um, is, we had sorry, a discussion. I'm going to break, break this down. I'm so sorry. But what goes through your mind as you're walking down the hotel corridor, looking at that closed door? And Robert, you don't know once you knock on that door and walk into that room, whether you're coming back or not. What what goes through your mind? Well, you know, I, I, I've got my my defense mechanisms that are, you know, I try to explain it. Like I had two brains that were operating at the same time. One was my agent brain and one was my undercover persona uh, brain. And um, you really need to be careful about allowing your undercover brain to so override your natural instincts that you begin to demonstrate fear Yes. Um, they pick up on that. It's like walking down the street and a dog coming in the other direction that's not leashed. And, you know, if you're afraid of dogs, um, somehow or another, they just sense it and, and you're the first one they bite. But if you don't uh, emit that type of fear, you know, your chances are going to be diminished that you're going to get bit. So I didn't want to get bit. And um, and and so I I did not bring my briefcase into the meeting. The, I left it in my car. The That's where the one. recorder was. Yes. And because um, I thought I might get shook, shook down. And um, and so I went into the room and he was the only one there. He didn't shake me down. And um, and so I wound up having a meeting with him and he was anticipating my having certain bank records from Switzerland with me, which were in the briefcase. And I said, oh, gee, I forgot. You know, it's in the briefcase. It's uh, in my car. I'll be right mm -hmm. back. So then I brought the briefcase in and um, threw it on the bed and he kept looking at it, glancing at it like every 30 seconds. <clears throat> it was really getting him unsettled. Eventually, <clears throat> excuse me, I opened up the briefcase and, and he was sitting across from me at the table. So the briefcase, he only saw the back of the briefcase, the leather portion. He didn't see what was in the briefcase from where he was sitting. Thankfully, he didn't because I had forewarned my office that the Velcro that held the hidden recorder in a compartment was beginning to give way and um, it needed to wow. be uh, uh, traded out. Unfortunately, they didn't do that. So when I opened it up, <clears throat> a Nagra recorder, uh, which is a pretty big recorder, uh, fell into the base of the briefcase with a nest of wires. And I tried to act like my hair wasn't on fire as I put things tried to put things back together again, looking as though I was searching for papers. And he began to, began to get impatient and stood up and came around just as I put that back together again. Oh my and, God. Um, and he didn't see the recorder. So 
Um, I'm not sure what would have happened had he had he seen the recorder, given everything that was said. But when I was in that meeting, I did what my handlers, my trainers always emphasized to me. You know, you 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 do not want to do this type of work unless you have been vetted psychologically. Number one, you've been trained properly and that you um, um, are are capable and, and certified to, you know, to do this type of, of work. Right. And one of the things that my mentors and one of my mentors is, a, is a, an agent, former agent with the FBI by the name of Joe Pistone, who the movie and the book Donnie Brasco um, is about. He was one of the trainers in my undercover school. We've become very, very good friends over the years. And um, I, I respect him highly. And one of the things that he always said was, you know, when, when things get thick like this, make sure you need to start, you need to react like a bad guy. Do not think yes. of this as, you know, as an agent. Now, an agent might get chesty. An agent might say, well, you know, it wasn't my guys, it was your guys, and you guys are doing this. And I simply took the position of, listen, the information you have is extraordinarily, extraordinarily valuable. And I accept your concerns that there must have been a leak somewhere. But now we need to find the leak. And if it's on my side, my side, I will eliminate it, I assure you. Right. And, and I expect you to do the same thing. So we became team members. And I said, listen, I don't want any more money. There was another no, 95 no. million that was to be coming. And I said, listen, no, we no, Robert, shut down. Just, before we get into that, because to, to our listeners, we're, we're talking millions of dollars and we're talking Donnie Brasco and all these things. Let's get some context here as to exactly who you're infiltrating and what they're up against. Because one of those guys, and, and I remember reading this in your second book, The Betrayal, um, they caught somebody who they felt had betrayed them, this being the drug lords from Colombia. They hung him up by his wrist, and then they turned on a blowtorch, and they killed him by burning from the feet upwards his body. And it said his screams could be heard. These are the guys that you're up against. These are the guys who are doing, you're doing this undercover investigation with. So please give us a sense of who these guys were in, in that world in the late 80s and, and, and 1990s that I remember very well, but many of our listeners may not. Sure. Well, <clears throat> the, the target of the uh, infiltration was the Medellin cartel and the um, money launderers for the, ho- uh, for the cartel. Principally, we wanted to follow the money. We wanted to seize as much of the money as we could. We knew following the money would lead us to command and control and the people in charge. Now, to be clear, I just want to say, because you and I know the Medellin cartel and the the Cali cartel, but these are the biggest drug gangs of the world at that time. Colombia is the nexus of the thing. And 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 tell us a little bit about who Pablo Escobar is. And I'm so sorry, this is my daily work as a professor. I'm meeting students and they have absolutely no idea of things that, that, that are you know, clear night and day to me. So tell, tell, tell us a little bit about who Pablo Escobar was. Sure. Well, your listeners may know more about the Mexican cartel leader, El Chapo Guzman. Yes. So um, El Chapo Guzman was a, a puppy in the, in the uh, drug world compared to Pablo Escobar. Wow. Um, Pablo Escobar ran the Medellin cartel, the board of the cartel, included the Ochoa family, um, several brothers. Uh, Fabio Ochoa was the one that I got closest to. Uh, Rodriguez Gacha um, and, num- and a number of other people who sat on the, on the board. They were by far in control of all of the importations of cocaine, virtually all of the importations of cocaine into the United States. And I say that because at that particular time, they were working in unison with the Cali cartel. It wasn't until later that the Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel became um, deadly rivals. Um, so because I'm, I'm in there in the, wow. I, I started in 86, 87, 88 is when I was in the. And so in, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars if not billions of dollars flowing back and forth between these Colombian drug lords because of their exporting of drugs into America. Yeah, it's clearly billions. Um, I dealt with one distributor 
who was one of the more popular distributors um, based in the U.S. that worked with the cartel. He was played in the Infiltrator film by Benjamin Bratt. Um, his name right. is Roberto Elcaino. And Roberto would walk in when, you know, <laughs> when people wanted to do major drug deals, they would need to go to wherever the, they, they, they called them um, Los Duros, the, the strong mm -hmm. ones. And they would need, they would be, let's say, Fabio Ochoa would be at a house and there would be a line of people who wanted to come in and to do a thousand, two thousand kilo deals left and right. But when, um, when Roberto Alcano showed up, he went straight to the front of the line wow. and, so and sat they, down with him. So when you're doing your undercover investigations, and we're just about to start talking about what you did with the betrayal investigation, which is the story of your, in, in your second book. You're up against some really violent men who blowtorched people to death. Uh, you know, death is so, you know, it's saturated the pages of your book, how often violence is used. They're dealing in billions of dollars around the world. You decide to go not just once into that world, but a second time. Tell us that story. What were you doing then? Sure. So at the same time that I was infiltrating the Medellin cartel, um, I was infiltrating financial institutions that were helping them to launder this money. And the major financial institution that I infiltrated was at the time, the seventh largest privately held bank in the world, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI. Wow. So they had a presence in 72 countries. They were a, um, probably they, they were at the time, the largest Arab bank in the world. Um, they were very hopeful to become major players uh, along, the, along the sides of Bank of America and HSBC. That's what their goals were. And that's and how big they were. They were the seventh biggest in the world. Seventh biggest privately held bank in the world. They had about 14, 15,000 employees, wow. um, more than and, 500 branches. And they're money laundering for drug traffickers. Yes. Um, what I came to learn as a result of my relationship with some of those officers were that they had a, uh, an inner team within their private client division that specialized in taking in accounts that had money seeking secrecy from governments. So that money falls into many different categories. It could be uh, people who have drug, um, they're drug traffickers. They could be illegal arms dealers, terrorists. Uh, people pilfering treasuries, people evading income taxes. They right. could be people who um, are trying to deal with prohibited nations presently like Iran, who uh, is sanctioned against doing any kind of uh, business in, with, with U.S. Uh, citizens. and the guys, that you, the guys that you were infiltrating was a small cadre of those guys who were linked up with the biggest drug lords in the world. Yes. How did yeah. you get in? You know, I'd like to say that it was some very sophisticated plan by the government, but um, it's not. And it is the uh, underscore of my saying that it's better to be lucky than to be good. Maybe luck is having an opportunity and being prepared for it when that opportunity gets there. But the cartel kept telling me that, listen, they, they, they loved the, the money laundering methodologies that I was using. They were not happy about the fact that the ultimate payout was coming in the form of wires in U.S. dollar accounts that were opened within institutions that were in the United States. They wanted me to transfer that over to U.S. dollar accounts within the country of Panama. And there was a number of reasons why. Of course, the, the layers of secrecy, the inability for the U.S. government to get access to records there. But most importantly, what they blatantly told me was, we have Manuel Noriega, the, the leader of Panama, in our pocket. The, and the, there's the no way... Excuse me? The, the president of, of Panama at that time. He was the general in charge. Yeah. He, um, he actually didn't hold officially the president, but he was the president and everything else. He was a dictator. He, okay. Was, but let me take a couple of steps back here because you and I know this story, but I want to make sure our listeners understand that you are posing as an organized crime, mafia-connected guy. So you've had to establish that cover in the U.S., and now you're traveling around the world meeting these high-level banking executives, and you're meeting these, these major drug guys. 
what are those meetings like? Mm. Yeah, you know, um, I'll, I'll tell you about what I think is probably one of the most um, startling meetings that I ever had at BCCI, and that'll give you a feel for this. Please. The person who was assigned as my account relationship manager, when you are an extraordinarily, extraordinarily wealthy person and you have an account relationship with an international bank, oftentimes there's a, even though you, you may conduct transactions all over the world, a person gets assigned to be your principal contact. Mm-hmm. And in this instance, it was a man by the name of Amjad Awan, A-W-A-N. Okay. And as I got to know Amjad better, what I learned was that Amjad's father was the previously the head of the national police in Pakistan and controlled the ISI. <laughs> now, that is the, the ISI, Pakistani, Pakistani Intelligence Service. Yes. Yeah, the equivalent of the guys. CIA. These are huge guys. And you're dealing with the guys that represent the president of Panama, the entire country. Yes. And um, one of other, uh, one of um, Amjad's other clients was Manuel Noriega, which is why it is that I was able to get quite a bit of information about where Manuel Noriega's um, illicit millions, tens of millions was salted away in, in uh, accounts in London and Luxembourg. But I, I knew that my relationship with Amjad was going to be the most important thing for me to develop in order to open doors, secret doors about um, illicit activity that was um, occurring between the bank and many bad guys. So I'm sitting in a boardroom and this is generally the way it went. I would show up there. Amjad would escort me into a boardroom that was massive. It had a a table there that you could probably land a small plane on. (laughs) Um, And then there was a living room setting in the corner. And that's where we sat. And an assistant would come in with espresso coffee. And we would sit there and talk about um, transactions that needed to be carried out. And that's where we planned the money laundering that was going on. But as I sat there with him one day, he got a phone call. He picked it up. He started just listening and he literally was turning white. And he said, you're sure there's no doubt that he is. And I'm sitting there and he kept saying things like that. And I'm thinking, Uh God, he's getting a phone call about me. Yeah. And when he gets off the phone, um, he says, Bob, I have to end this meeting. I'm sorry. But uh, the president of my country was just killed and I need to move some funds. Um, he was also managing um, the uh, accounts of then President Zia yes. of Pakistan. And he said, you know, not only was my president killed, your ambassador was killed and the Russians shot them, uh, used a rocket to blow up a helicopter that they were in. And I've got to end the meeting. So we ended the meeting and I left. Now, when I called my office, I never used any of my undercover phones. So I left the office and behind the BCCI bank Mm -hmm. was at that time, three or four banks of pay phones, probably I would say 12 or so in a bank. So you're talking about an area where there were nearly 50 pay phones in lines, right? These were frequently being used by drug traffickers to communicate with their contacts in Colombia. So I went to the phone, I called my office and I said, I guess you guys heard that the president of Pakistan had been killed. No, they hadn't heard anything about that and knew nothing about what I had just learned. What I learned, I learned within minutes after it happened because I was at the pulse of where the illicit funds that and, and I can't prove they were, but there's little doubt in my mind yes. that there were illicit funds that, that, that were tied to President Zia that needed to be moved. And, um, and so, yeah, basically what I found in, in, as a result of that meeting and others was that when I was at BCCI in Miami, I was at the crossroads of highways that were driven by drug traffickers, yes. by corrupt country leaders by the intelligence communities and by politicians, all of whom were in that sector where those highways crossed because their wealth was being managed by 
senior executives of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. Ultimately, when we were able to arrest the officers that I dealt with, convict them, and have them sentenced, some people might think 12 years in prison is not a big deal. Certainly a drug trafficker can do that standing on their head. But when you are a banker who's used to the beautiful life, 12 years behind bars in a jumpsuit and flip-flops, uh, trying to avoid gangs um, in your pod is yep. a very, very long period of time. So they wanted to try to cooperate. And, um, and this leads to why it is that I was so intent on going back under. What they said to me at BCCI was, why are you picking on us? We're not doing anything the rest of the international banking community isn't doing. We didn't get employed by BCCI out of the gate. Some of us worked for Bank of America. Some of us worked for the uh, Royal Bank of Canada. We just simply took the techniques that we saw that other institutions were using and we tried to perfect them so that we could provide a better secret service to those with money seeking secrecy from governments. And, and that's the theme, I think, Robert, all the way through your books is that sense that the internet, there's some, there's a cancer at the heart of the international financial world uh, where these top international banks that we respect who, who weren't part of this investigation that you, 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 you did are doing exactly the same thing that they did. And they're continuing to do it as of Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. They're continuing to do this kind of stuff. Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind. And what I saw was in, in the invitation that I got to resign from customs and to accept a position at the Drug Enforcement Administration because they wanted me to do another long-term undercover, this time to infiltrate the Cali cartel. I was driven to do that, not just because I wanted to achieve the goals that were simply stated of trying to identify the biggest money launderers aiding the Cali cartel, but because I knew that it was going to give me an opportunity to get back into the underworld and to attempt to corroborate what I had heard there is from a the great, BCCI officers. There's a great story in The Betrayal where your wife, who I frankly think should get a congressional medal for the, the patience and the bravery and the courage that she showed all the way through your investigations, looks you in the eye. It's New Year's Eve. You're in New York. The ball is about to drop. And she's just frightened. And she's also a little angry. And she's saying, why do you do this? Why do you put me and the family through this? Tell us what your response was. Hmm. Well, you know, it, it, she said it a little bit differently. Yeah, she would have preferred that I not go back undercover. But what she said to me was that, you know, that I've never tried to stand in the way of you pursuing um, your career. And I, I'll support you in this one as well. Um, but at some stage here, <laughs> we need to try to be, you know, we need to try to get to normal. And I said, you know, well, this is the last one I'm going to do. Um, but I really, I need to do this. But I, Robert, I mean, this was her normal for all those years was right. kissing goodbye to her husband and not knowing when he would come back or even if he would come back. That's true. Yeah. You know, the, the, the advantage that we had, um, because this kind of relates to the issue of corruption in my view, you know, the worst thing you can ever do is to take someone and, and ask them to do undercover work, long-term undercover work, not train them, do it because you feel as though they have a special ability that makes them effective, such as a second language. Right. And, or they look the part. Yeah. Or you look the part and, um, and let's say that they're newly married. Their wife has an infant child. The wife has no career that they're pursuing. They're moved to the other side of the country. There's no family or friends to support them. That is a formula for disaster for divorce, for abuse, uh, substance abuse, for all kinds of problems that are going to happen to that couple. Or, and I'm not giving this spoiler because I want people to go out and buy copies of The Betrayal. 
it happens in your team. Well, I won't say which of the agents, I won't say any of this, but one of your agents goes right to the dark side. Yeah. Little did I know he had been on the dark side for a couple of years before he was assigned to work with me. This is when I went in the second time trying to infiltrate the Cali, well, infiltrating the Cali cartel um, in the story that's explained in the betrayal. And um, he outed me at the, at, after about oh, three quarters of a year to almost a year undercover. I was, in my view, I was completely welcomed into the Cali cartel. We were going great guns. And, and then all of a sudden things started going off the rails. And the reason it went off the rails is that um, one of my own, somebody who I would see, you. who would smile at me and call me a friend, um, was actually on the take and outed me to very high level people within the Cali cartel. So little did I know that at times when I was working undercover um, out of the country in Panama and in Colombia, uh, some people knew that I was a DEA agent. And, and I the price, the price for that was potentially you being strung up and a blowtorch being taken to your legs. Yeah, there was a um, at the time that I was in Colombia, it was before Pablo Escobar was killed. Mm -hmm. It was at the height of his attempts to conduct a war with the Colombian government. There were bombs going off every day in different parts of Bogota and different parts of Colum other, other cities in Colombia um, that were being uh, put there by the Sicarios, the murderers who yes. worked for Pablo Escobar. He had hundreds of them. And, and those murderers, because of a corrupt man on your team, know you're a DEA agent. So you're walking a very, very thin tightrope. There was a story, if you don't mind, that started the betrayal. Tell us a little bit about that one, where the, where the guy comes to visit you and it comes within minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I had, by this time, I had some suspicions that there was a mole and that somehow my identity was probably compromised, but I was at a point in my career and a point in this operation where for a lack of a better term, information became my heroin. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cause some people, some people like they, when they ask me, they go like, Oh, gee, wasn't it addictive to be in those thousand dollar a night hotels and doing eating in these five star. Yes. Uh, it wasn't the lifestyle. Yeah. It was getting that information. Yeah. That, that, that didn't matter to me. What mattered to me was, could I get my heroin? Could I get my information? Huh. Could I, could I, could I get, because I would get information and then on the information that I provided a ton of cocaine would get seized. Right. Um, millions of dollars would be seized. So I'm going into this meeting half worried that this guy knows who I really am, but also thinking that I'm so good at what I do yeah. that even if he thinks that I can talk him out of it, which is not very smart, but it's, it's the, the ego talking. It's the truth of, it's the truth of where I was in my head at that time. Hmm. And I share that when I, when I speak to new undercover agents at undercover schools, hang on, Rob, um, Robert, before we get into that, Let's not leave our listeners hanging. Okay. We're in a meeting. We're in a meeting. And, 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 and literally you're minutes away from being killed. Please tell, tell them that story. Sure. Okay. So the, the person who came to see me is Luis Latore, yes. who was a major money launderer for the Cali cartel. He personally knew Miguel Rodriguez Orjuela, who was right. the head yep. of the Cali cartel. So he was also a pilot and he flew in his private plane from Bogota to Panama and when he landed, unbeknownst to me, he was met by some people in Panama that were killers. And um, they were heavily armed. He came, he came in an SUV to uh, outside the office that I shared with a bad guy yep. uh, in Panama. And his instructions to the three guys he left in the SUV who had uh, automatic machine guns and um, all kinds of things that would have cut and cut people in half in a heartbeat. Um, that if he wasn't back out 35 minutes from when he entered the building, that they should come in and kill everybody in the room. And um, so 
he got there. He was clearly very nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to calm him down. He, we, we discussed plans. He wanted to resume our money laundering relationship. So he said, and, um, and he kept looking at his watch. Um, I have a tendency to talk too much that you, and you've personally now know that. So <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm hanging on your words on this. One. <laughs> so he left. And as he left, these guys were in the process of trying to get into the building and, um, and he turned them around, um, Wow. You mean you had talked for 32 minutes? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the person who was there with me, who was a, um, assigned to the Drug Enforcement Administration as a DEA task force officer, um, a Pinellas County narcotics detective by the name of Al Melendez, played the role of my bodyguard. And, um, and he would have been killed and I would have been killed, uh, along with a lady who was in there totally innocent, who happened to be a secretary who was a local resident in Panama. So, um, um, that was, that was about the closest that I think I came to, um, but brother, I want to say uh, you're about to say the closest to being killed almost every page of your thing. I've, I've got little sticky notes that Ariane and I have gone through. Ariane is the student who's, who's produced this episode of crime waves. And we've taken time after time of where was, you know, another time when Robert Missouri was almost killed another time when your bosses at. U.S. Customs betrayed you to get political points. Uh, Another time when this particular rogue agent betrayed you to the bad guys. It just, it's extraordinary. I'm glad you said that thing about heroin, information being your heroin, because that was one of our questions. How do you keep going Mm. when you have all these death, constant fear of death? Well, and you know, it was multiplied some because at the end of the infiltrator, um, at the bachelor party before the fake wedding in the movie, they, they have a fake wedding, but the fake wedding didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people came to the country club. They were there for two days. And that and, night, when before, we say, when we say they came, these are, these are, this is to the list to our listeners. These are the 200 of the top drug lords, their associates, their money launderers from the bank. Um, it, it, it was like the who's who of the drug world and their financial world. And Robert fakes a wedding. So every, you know, invites everybody, they all come and then they move in. Well, the major guys came, um, you know, we charged that at that time we charged 85 and we charged more later. Yes. But, but, um, but anyway, there was a good representation that was there. And, um, and so the night before they were taken down uh, when they went to what they thought would be a bachelor party. And, and, um, and so that began really the work because anybody who is a lawyer knows that, you know, getting ready for trial and going to trial is where the rubber meets the road. You can have these fantastic investigations and collect this evidence, but unless you can prevail in a courtroom and prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the individual committed that criminal offense, you don't have anything. So about 30 days into that process, um, as required, uh, the government disclosed my true name because the defendants have the right to be able to um, investigate my credibility. Yes. And, um, and so as soon as they knew who I really was, um, a witness came forward uh, explaining that there had now been a contract issued on my life for a half million dollars. And as a result, uh, I and my wife and my two children who then were 11 and 13 um, basically went underground and for a considerable period of time. Robert, I've said this before in this interview. I'll say it again. Your wife deserves a congressional medal for what she Especially after that happened. And she, she recognized that she was willing to do it one more time. Um, it's, um, it's not, (laughs) it's not a common thing, but what I was, what I was going to contrast as i gave you before the formula of a husband and wife for disaster newly married you know my wife and i met when she was 16 and i was 17 and um she was a sophomore in high school and we um we were best friends before we decided to date and um other than the year and a half she dumped me in college um we have uh, maintained that relationship 
but um, I was intent on making sure that she became my wife and the mother of our children. And, um, and so we got back together again. And yes. we, at this stage, when the threats were made, we had already had a 20 year relationship with one another. My wife is an educator. She um, um, was very, very involved in her profession. And my children were very, very involved in gymnastics on a national level. Um, they didn't have time to worry about a whole lot of anything. They were very, very um, involved in that. Between academics and, and uh, gymnastics, there was no time left. Robert, uh, myself and another of my doctoral colleagues here at the university had the, the great honor and privilege of uh, giving a presentation on our work to the undercover agents up in Canada who are taking on the Nindrangata, the, the, you know, the tough organized crime mm -hmm. up there with the Hells Angels. And I said, I'm going to have this meeting with, with, you know, uh, the greatest, the greatest undercover agent. And, and, you know, along with Donnie Brasco, what question would you like me to ask? And their question was, how do you do this and balance our personal lives? Because our personal lives pay this such a high price for doing undercover work with our personal lives. Yeah. If you do not have a deep, deep root deep roots um, within your personal life before you take this on, it's going to be like a, a sapling in a hurricane. You're going to get yanked out by the roots. Um, if we didn't, if my wife and I did not have that 20 years um, together, uh, this would have been, and it almost was yeah. um, the destruction of, of our, of our marriage. And so frankly, who could blame a woman who had a half million dollar bounty placed on her husband's head from just saying, you know what, that's, uh, I got to get out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Some people would, um, would definitely do that. I think she knows that, um, that I'm, I'm doing it for at least what in my own distorted mind is, is for the, uh, for the right reasons. Um, and so, you know, and I, and I, I know exactly um, what they're up against in Canada because I've testified on behalf of the RCMP in two major cases on the Canadian, um, Italian-Canadian organized crime up there. And it's interesting. They come into play in the infiltrator story yep. because they now, control the ports of Canada, of Canada. Oh, they do. But that's a whole nother episode. We're going to talk True. about how the corruption in Canada. But you, you were just talking on something there about your personal reasons for going undercover. That, that was another question that both my students and these undercover agents really want to know is why do you do what you do? Mm. I clearly, I come from a different generation. So this may be a very difficult thing for some people to see as rational thinking, but this is my thinking, you know, my, my dad who barely talked about it was a world war two vet. He fought in Africa, in Italy, in France, and was fully willing to give his life for a cause. It was much bigger, a much bigger cause than himself. My mom was a civilian employee for the military and the head comptroller of an entire air, um, uh, army base. Um, her dedication to country was very strong. My brother, who graduated from college, um, volunteered to join the army and to fight in Vietnam um, and served his country honorably. And this was my opportunity to serve my country. My, my parents, I think, caused um, something to be drilled into my mind that the importance of life is family, God, and country. And everything else, you've got to excuse my, my French on this, but everything else is bullshit. Yeah. You know, the bottom line is. Stand up and do what's right. You got, you know, there's a time when you've got to do, you know, if you can't, if your career is all about you, if you can't have goals that are 
bigger than yourself, that you don't have a cause for which you do what you do. Um, and you could be in the private sector and have that. You may feel, I mean, I ran an investigative agency for 15 years after I left the government. I, I was involved in that for a number of different reasons, but in part because I wanted to see us provide the best possible resources we could for the clients that we served. And, and that was really important to me. And these were, uh, my employees were my friends. So Amen. it was bigger than me. Okay, Robert, we're just coming almost to the end of the episode. Uh, okay. Ariana Timmons, who is uh, one of my protégés here at the university, she's a brilliant student. Um, I said, we've got Robert Mazur, the greatest in undercover investigator since Donnie Brasco, to come to speak to us. You have three days to read all his books, every interview, watch his movies. And she did. <laughs> a fantastic work, without complaint, without things. But anyway, I'd like to give her an opportunity to just come on our episode here and ask, it, ask you a couple of questions. So, Ariana. Ariana Timmons, please. Robert Mazur. Hello again. Hi. Um, Hi, Ariana. So I just have two questions for you. Okay. Um, the first one would be, um, from your experience, what is something you could only learn from being undercover in the field and not in the multiple training academies that you had to go through before you even could go undercover? Hmm. Yes. Um, excellent. Excellent. Excellent question. One of the things I try to drill into the minds of undercover agents that the institutions of law enforcement don't stress enough and is never, ever forget that your adversary is smarter than you. You have to build your plan. You have to figure out what course you'll take with the assumption that your, your adversary is smarter, has more resources, and you have to be able to be prepared for that. You have to take preemptive steps to ensure that your back is covered. I did a lot of things that people thought I was crazy for doing to, in what I thought was enhancing my security. And they were uh, little traps <laughs> that uh, bad guys could stumble over and, 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 it would alert me to the fact that, yeah, you know, that's right. They did try to do what I thought they might try to do. But anyway, I think it's, it's always keeping in mind that your adversary is smarter um, than you are. Thank you. Um, and my second question, if you, if you had the chance to restart your career and do it all over again, would you do anything different? Mm. Another great question. You know, it's hard for me at this stage to put my head inside that 34-year-old mind um, when I decided that I wanted to do long-term undercover. But I'm going to explain a scene to you that tells the answer to why I would say that I hope I have the courage that I would never have done long-term undercover. And the reason I say that is, you know, it had a dramatic impact upon the relationship I have with my daughter. My daughter was nine years old when I first started undercover in the infiltrator story, and she was 17 years old when I finished testifying in the betrayal story. When the infiltrator film premiered in New York, my wife and I took my daughter and my son and their spouses with us. We spent a couple of days together in advance and then went to the premiere. And after the showing of the film, my daughter came over to me privately and said, now I understand, I'll forgive you. Wow. So since she was nine years old, and I knew it, um, I, had, I had broken um, a father's oath. You know, I wasn't there for her as much as I should have been. And it leaves a hole in my heart that will never be filled. Even though she technically has forgiven me, she will never forget. And it's that, um, that relationship is much more important to me than the infiltrator book film, betrayal book film, any of this stuff, or learning about Pablo Escobar. And you know what? Um, somebody else could have uh, said, I'll do it. And, um, and for that reason, I wouldn't do it again. Robert, thank you. And I mean, thank you both for your time today. Uh, it's been an extraordinary uh, privilege to listen to you, but thank you also for your work. 
Um, that last story talks about the true cost of, of doing what you did. So please, th- uh, please accept our thanks and please give our big thanks to your wife as well, because that is throughout the pages, what she did and, and her courage is truly extraordinary. Well, thank you very much. And I, I'm, I was very excited to get an opportunity to speak with your students and, and everyone else, but especially your students, because you are now in a position in your life where you are going to be making some decisions that um, are going to be very, very hard decisions. And whether or not um, you have a calling to do something like this and similar to this. And, um, and all I can say is that even though I was very honest with you and said that I wouldn't do this again, um, our country needs the support that they get um, from many, many law enforcement officers. You may not know this, but 22,000 law enforcement officers have been killed in the line of duty in the United States. And without them and their sacrifices and their family sacrifices and their colleague sacrifices, we would not be living in a democracy. And so um, if you do get the calling, just know that you would be doing something that's life-changing for many, many people. And, and, um, and I wish you all very, very well. Robert, thank you. You're welcome. Hey, this is Declan. Uh, thank you so much for listening to that interview with the extraordinary Robert Mazur. If you get a chance, do take a look at his books, The Betrayal and The Infiltrator. They are absolutely brilliant. We're hoping to have Robert back on the program because all the way through those books is the clear pattern that American law enforcement should have and should be raising its ambitions, really going after bankers and financial institutions rather than the actual drug purveyors. Uh, would love to have Robert back on. In behalf of the student producers who did fantastic work on this program, Ariana Timmons and Ryan Decker, thanks so much for listening. Uh, of course, the usual, uh, like us, subscribe, uh, follow us on social media, they're incredibly important. And we'll see you for the next episode. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.